Welcome to the previously Rock Hounding podcast, where we explore the world of rock hounding and lapidary from the ye olden days of the 1970s and 80s through the lens of vintage issues of Rock and Gem magazine. This is episode 20. We're looking at Rock and Gem magazine from April 1980. And before we get into the magazine, don't you love 1980s music? Yes. What, what what was your favorite event in 1980? What do you what do you remember doing back in 1980? Very little. Well, <laughs> why would that be? Why would that be? Your brain does not form memories when you're a baby. Well, I'm gonna. Although I wasn't born yet in 1980, uh, there were four very notable events that we should point out since we've oh, now moved moved beyond the 1970s and we're in the 1980s the four most important things that happened in that year post-it notes go on sale 1979 post-it notes didn't exist 1980 they do exist Hmm. the united states defeated the soviets in a hockey game which was called the miracle on ice which was uh made into a movie okay pac-man pac-man came out i love some pac-man it's hard to think about a world without Pac-Man. Yeah. Mount St. Helens blew up. Okay. Those things. All right. Nothing else happened anywhere else on, in the world. Those were the only four events that happened. Okay, well, now we have context. And we're ready. Are, you, are we ready to dive in? <laughs> we are. We are. Uh, the, the ads. There's a, a handful of ads that I thought were interesting that i hadn't seen before yeah uh i got a two for one because i thought we're doing two for one here because there were two ads uh from two different companies right next to each other and one was from mohav industries the other one was hillquest those are both lapidary companies uh you know they sold machines all the stuff that you would expect they both had ads though with almost an identical angle which was which I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody like promote anything like this before, where uh, Mohav said, "Ideal slab saws are sold from the factory direct to you, which means the lowest price possible." And Hillquest, uh, their ad, they said that they offer an opportunity to buy direct from the manufacturer for significant savings. Huh. And I I don't really th- that's so standard in our life now. Yeah. When I want some, I mean, yeah, there's resellers. There's some resellers out there. But for the most part, it's been so common for the past 15, 20-ish years where you don't buy through a third party. You can just buy straight from a manufacturer. Um, in terms of lapidary. Yeah, in terms of lapidary. Yeah. yeah, you can just like, you can call Lortone. You can call these uh, Highland Park, High Tech, go to their website whatever and just buy direct so i have a hard time thinking about a pre a pre buy direct world yeah that seems obvious you buy it from the company but i guess making things and shipping and selling are two different things and all of these companies they still have dealers yeah like uh, our rock shop here in town they sell cab king cab machines i think they sell some diamonds Diamond Pacific stuff, and you know, just I, I can go there and buy it for 
plus or minus 25 bucks from what? I wouldn't say that's a significant savings. Yeah, but it's it from the manufacturer. Yeah, yeah it's convenient right. to go to a local dealer, but if you don't have it, like, you know, right. buy direct. But uh, I just thought that was interesting yeah. that they're both like, hey, you know, you just buy, give, go straight to us. <laughs> there was an ad from Covington, and it said, 122 years before 471 pounds moon rocks, Covington manufactured hand and foot powered grinders for gem and gem coral and seashells but what's 471 pounds moon rock that's what the apollo missions brought back i feel like they forgot part of the sentence <laughs> yeah but before the moon rocks what it just said 122 years before 471 pounds moon rocks yeah i i think you need the context of the 70s and the Apollo missions and the retrieval of the moon rocks. The moon rocks came to Earth. Yes. They forgot that part. Those 470, before they existed, will, they just came into existence on the moon? Yeah, I mean, I think that was in, like, the, say, like, the, the popular, like, collective zeitgeist of culture. Yeah. But no, that is, <laughs> they kind of left that one out. Um, there was an ad from Lapidary Products Manufacturing selling a new vibratory tumbler that washes itself out, apparently. Mm -hmm. They also said, as a low noise level, no mess, it could be used in, in the living room. Uh, mm. They said, from rough grind to finish polish, this machine never has to be turned off or emptied out to clean stones for a new grit. Which I find that to be ridiculous and completely insane. So I guess they didn't really explain it. I tried to look up to see if there was a, a patent for it that I, I could find. I couldn't find any patents. Uh, but it must have, it was kind of like a tall, big unit. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine there would have to be like a freshwater like reservoir and it somehow managed to like add water, rinse the rocks, and then wash itself out in, like, a cycle or something. Uh, That's the only thing that I could come up with. But I can't imagine, right, running a vibratory tumbler in your living room. In the living room, that's... No. Also sounds like you're probably messing with water. Like, you're going to have to empty it or add water unless it's got a giant reservoir of dirty water it, it makes no sense whatsoever and i mean anybody that has seen like a uh a modern vibratory tumbler like i can't think of the name off the top of my head but they're loud they're loud and they vibrate so like you feel it well this uh weird gimmicky product was 385 dollars and 89 dollars for the cabinet which i was sold mm. separately so when you adjust that for inflation, um, you know, uh, it's four, $474 adjusted for inflation. That's $1,749 for this weird, gimmicky vibratory tumbler. That's a lot. That's that a is, lot of money. That's a lot. That is a lot. I mean, I get it. Like, vibratory tumbling is great. You know, everybody that's serious about tumbling, they grind 
with a rotary, and then they'll do finishing stages with a vibe. Uh, the best ones today are not eighteen hundred dollars. That's for sure. I don't. Know. I thought that was. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, there's an ad that we've seen many times and noted maybe just once for Ed's House of Gems. It says, would you like to buy yourself a surprise package? 110 pounds of scenic agate from India for $60. And I think this has been in every single issue. We first noted it in episode one, which was June 1975, so like five years ago. They just... For five years, they're trying to sell these surprise packages of scenic agate from India, which either it was really popular and they made a lot of money and they're like, keep selling, or it was really bad and they're like, we can't sell this in our store. <laughs> Let's surprise package, everybody. I, If there is something like that today, I'd be very tempted to try it. Very tempted to try it. It was $50. In 1975, and now it's 60. Inflation. Yeah. Although they probably had that exact same pile of rocks yeah. out, out back. <laughs> Maybe the shipping went up. Yeah. That, you know, that is a, a factor that we have never really explored. Like, the historic prices of shipping. I feel like we're very spoiled nowadays with USPS flat rate shipping boxes. That yeah. definitely was not always the case. Um, I don't know what kind of percentage of, I don't even know how to say this. Like, what were the shipping rates back then? Yeah. So. 110 pounds is a lot to ship. Yes. Yeah. There was an ad from a company called Dotson and Evans selling a product called a precision slab trimmer. Simply score and snap. New fast way to trim without oils, water, mess, messy sawing, or hand fatigue from gripping scoring tools. So I think we saw something like this in the past, but it was from a different company. Hmm. And it's essentially, it, it's like a little frame. And it really uh, reminds me of glass cutting, where it's like you have a little table, you put your your pane of glass on it and then you have a diamond wheel and you score back and forth back and forth and then it kind of supports it on both sides and it has a little i guess a little, almost like a little hinging mechanism and it allows you to get a nice even snap but what i find interesting about it is that they are they're they're promoting this as like an alternative to using a lapidary saw like a trim saw just score around like a, a let's say a, a cabochon an oval laid out on a slab to make a cabochon and just snap the excess off i'm like i don't know about that like maybe on some material i could see yeah. that working like something very consistent maybe like a jasper but if you had a moss agate with all kinds of weird inclusions that's not going to snap Perfect. I don't know. I might be wrong. Nobody uses these things anymore. I tried to find one online. I couldn't find anybody selling a used one. It just seems like an old dated idea, which makes me want to take my little hand glass cutter and like <laughs> makeshift, have a makeshift one just to see like, can you actually score and snap slabs like that? And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was kind of neat. It's kind of pricey, 
43 bucks back then, 168 today. This seemed like a lot for like what would amount to like a thing you would try probably and never try again. Yeah. That does, I mean, something non-motorized, just like a blade. Pretty much. It's kind of a lot. It kind of reminded me of the the guillotine paper cutters from from school. Yeah. Kind of like a little bit like that. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it would work. Yeah, it seems like you, you'd have a lot of broken... Uh, yeah. It would, like, fracture in places that you wouldn't want it necessarily, but who knows, maybe... It must have worked at some point, or they wouldn't... I mean, they wouldn't sell it. I don't know. Well, should we go back to the vibratory tumbler that you put in your living room? I feel like that didn't work out. <laughs> Did you have any other ads you wanted to talk about? Yes, there was two other... Well, two-ish... I thought that was funny. There was one ad, and it was just a very small rectangle square. And it just said, see our Gyrock ad in the March issue, page 13. Mm-hmm. Like, they bought the big ad, and they're like, we can't afford it in the next issue, but let's put an ad in telling people to look at last month's to look at our ad. Like, who did? Who looked at that? <laughs> Reference back. And you're like, oh, the they had an ad in the last issue. I'm going to go find it and look at it. Page 13. Like, I don't think that's uh, really effective. I mean, maybe if it was like sitting on your coffee table, but I don't, yeah, I don't, you, that's not. You the, really wanted information about the gyrock? I guess. There was a, a small ad that read Seven Devils Ranch Resort for the get away from it all person. A real working cattle ranch experience with comfort and outstanding food. Fly in or drive in to timber country at 4,500 feet with cool, clean air. A turf airstrip 3,900 feet long. Hidden mines and minerals. A rockhound paradise. The rates include unlimited bar privilege. (laughs) They don't say what the rates are, but they had me at hidden mines and free beer. That, I know it sounded good until you're like, okay, a ranch, a real working cattle ranch experience, free unlimited bar. So yeah. Like, is that what it, the experiences of working on a cattle ranch? You're just drinking all day? Yeah. I tried well, to look it up. And what did you come up with? There's places called Seven Devils. I found this exact ranch, their last post on Facebook, yeah. kind of talking about it. I think it was 2019 or 2018, something yeah. like that. But is that the exact same one? Mm-hmm. How do you know? I found a lot of things called Seven Devils in Idaho, Seven Devils Ranch. There was a Seven Devils Ranch for sale. Oh. That was $1.5 million, but the price got reduced to $1 million. Well, I assumed it was this the one that I saw on Facebook... Yeah. Uh, didn't say free bar or no. unlimited bar on that. It was they, just they like... Do have, they do have an airstrip, though. Uh, so yeah, that's know. probably it. You know, I mean, a big ranch... For those of you who haven't ever been to remote areas of Washington, Idaho, Montana, airstrips, people have airstrips, or like community airstrips, that's a thing. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's not un- impossible that a big ranch has an airstrip, but like the... the this one did. If you're so. like a rich person 
enough rich enough to fly to your vacation why would you fly to a working cattle ranch that just doesn't seem like i also you can get a plane like we could go get like a a two-seater plane for you know let's just throw it out there 40 to 60 thousand dollars and then uh you get your pilot's license and we we go places if we die, I want it to be on, on your your head, not mine. But no, I mean, that uh, people yeah. people definitely spend that level of money on, like, a truck, right? Oh, getting your pilot's license is a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal, yeah. I mean, you're paying to go to pilot school, and, like, you are got to get all your, pay for all your hours. Yeah, and so, I mean, There's it's not a big just bar like, to cross over there. It's not just, like, 50K for the plane, and you're done. <laughs> but you... Buy the plane, you watch a YouTube tutorial, and try it out. Yes. You play some Microsoft Flight Simulator, <laughs> call it good. They didn't even say, like, what mines, what minerals, what rocks. Mystery rocks. It's they, hidden. like, advertise in other magazines, and they're like, I don't know. Hidden bird nests in that's their ad in the bird watching magazine. It, it kind of reminded me of the bags, where it's like yeah. uh, just a, a little sh- side shoulder tote type bag, mm-hmm. and you know, like it's great for the rock count. And then you know they're just changing that and be yes. like it's great for the bird watcher. The bird watcher. It's great for and then just whatever. And then used f- targeted advertising yes. different like hobby. Hobby type magazines, I bet. Did you have any other ads? There was one ad that stood out and that it was very different from all other ads, pretty much, that we've seen so far. It was an ad for Diamond Pacific. And they had a, I forget what the exact phrase at the top, but it was like, for peak performance, use a gem cutter or something. And they had a picture of their three machines, the Genie and two other ones, like sitting outside on mm-hmm. Treatment Peak. Mm-hmm. And it was two pages and it was full color. And we just haven't seen any wealth, not well thought out, but things like that before where it's like not just a drawing of the machine or a picture. It's like a thing with a background and the picture goes along with the tagline like we just haven't seen much of that i don't exactly recall but i believe lapidary dave did an interview with diamond pacific dawn and he told the story behind taking all of their photos for their machines they still use those exact photos still um they haven't i mean the machines are identical so they haven't changed the machine. So they use the original product photos where they like drove all their saws yeah. and uh, the genie and the Titan and all that stuff out into like that huh. whatever place that you uh, treatment said. peak. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it was different than everything else to take up two full pages of color and you're just using the color on a landscape photo versus. Your product. They're very pretty. Yeah, They're it's very a pretty. nice photo. I mm. guess it was eye-catching because it was different. Or they'd need more reference to moon rocks. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that's all the ads 
for for this. Uh, the columns, the glory hole, which is the editor's column, like many other glory hole columns. Uh, this one started out pretty standard, talking about winter being over, getting ready for like rock hounding trips. Uh, they had a comment about this issue and the next issue of Rock and Gem, and then it got. I would say it got a little. It got a little weird. It got a little weird. They started to talk about a group they're in contact with who uh, studies people over 100 years old. The Committee for an Extended Lifespan. Yeah, and they talked about the five basic patterns of lifestyle they discovered to be important with these very elderly people. Uh, That is like the secret to their longevity. Such as doing nothing to excess, waking up early, accepting all experiences as God's will, keeping busy, and using self-protection phrases like, never let anything bother me. There's a few problems here. Yeah, well, you know, it it reminds me, I've seen things like this before, and, you know, the interview with a woman, she's 104, and the person interviewing her is like, What's your secret? She's like, I smoke one cigarette a day and have a doubled egg. And you're like, great. It's almost like interviewing people who are 100 doesn't tell you anything about people who didn't make it to 100 and what they did. I bet they ate lots of deviled eggs. Or one. (laughs) They did plenty of things in moderation. Yeah, I mean, one deviled egg and one cigarette per breakfast and you're good to go. I, so, the primary factor in age at which you die, I mean, assuming you live a very long time, it's genetics. It's genetics. It's taking care of yourself, uh, staying mentally occupied. Don't just sit in front of the television and fade away. Um, but mostly genetics and not waking up early. We're going to talk about sitting in front of the television in the next column. We might. We might. Uh, yeah. You mean moderation and accepting things as God's will. I. Yes. Yeah, I, guess I if, don't know. If, I guess if God willed you to smoke a cigarette a day yeah. for longevity. I feel like, the you know, saying things like this, they're just so vague that you, a person reads them and you kind of connect the dots yourself. It's like, have you ever lost somebody who has an A, E, I, O, or U in their name? Or was born in winter? I'm talking to them right now. Oh. From beyond the grave. Uh-huh. That seems legit. $99 to continue. Oh. Yeah, I uh, felt like maybe the editor could have come up with something better to talk about. Yes. That was not a very good editor's column. What about, I mean, normally don't editor's columns talk about, like, what's going on at the magazine? I know he talked a little bit about, like, oh, we've got some articles coming up, but he didn't. That was it. He just yeah. said we got. It was just a, it was such an odd derailing of the. It wasn't great. Of, of the column. I don't know if I'd say similar, a little bit similarly, the frantic fumbler was 
derailed from their normal frantic fumbling into a more serious topic this month. This <laughs> Take it away. Yeah, so uh, the, the writer Mark Colin was uh, writing about his current day job of being a Mutual of Omaha agent. And, you know, he goes into people's houses and... Uh, when he sees that they have like a display of rocks or something like in their house, he uses that way to connect with people. And that led him to the realization that rock hounds in general are getting old and there's a lack of new people coming into the hobby. And in many ways he was predicting the eventual decline of the hobby being that in 1980, many of the people involved in the hobby were receiving Medicare. So if they're 65 and older, he's interacting with them as a mutual of Omaha agent, you know, and then he went on to kind of opine upon some of the different ways that this could be remedied, such as having like a program in a school to promote lapidary rock hounding. He also mentioned why younger people aren't getting into rock hounding and it's because they're sitting around watching TV and they don't have time for other hobbies. Yes. I wonder how many hours of TV people watched in 1980 versus how many hours of TV we watched in 2023. You should absolutely uh, make a note to yourself and look that up for the next podcast. Because, yeah, I, I I'm think... guessing we watch a lot more TV now. Yeah, let's. Uh, we'll come back in the next episode here and we will have we'll have that have that data yeah uh, also fuel costs was blamed as a reason people aren't getting into it which yeah okay. i yes i can see that you know i think um i would i would guess that we're watching way more nowadays i know that the number of hours that people spend watching YouTube every day is very high. Like, it's something like the average is like five and a half hours or something like that. So it's, I think that's a lot of time spent. But, you know, I mean, um, it's it, modern media consumption kind of hits differently, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's different, but it's funny to be like, everyone's watching TV. Like, everybody sits around and stares at a screen for all of their free time now well before the prevalence of television people sat around and listened to the radio that was like such a mind-blowing novelty you could do other things though when you're listening to the radio you could be working on your cab i mean it's kind of loud but blast it blast the radio well no i guess i mean more so just like the inception of radio radios coming into homes for the first time like people sat down in the evening and listened to, to the radio yeah and i wonder if we were reading a yeah. a magazine from back then they're like people in their radios probably <laughs> uh we'll be there at some point have radios <laughs> we already have radios oh. no we're gonna we're gonna look at things and be like people with their holograms flying cars why don't you make a real cabochon and meanwhile they just have 
virtual reality goggles on playing the cabochon game. They're sitting there just like pretending to grind. Uh-huh. Probably. That's a great idea. Patent pending. Uh-huh. Don't steal it. The shop talk was, eh, I had a hard time relating to it. It was about metalworking tools um, and mostly the mandrel and its usage in the forming and sizing of rings. So mandrel is basically like a long graduated cylinder with different ring sizes. Do you need a moment? No. No, I'm good. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and that's all. The, did you have any thoughts yeah, on the shop? No, yeah, shop talk was just kind of like, like man, oh, no. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the articles. The articles in this issue, we only had one field trip. Yeah. Usually we have, like, two, three. Was there, I think there may have even been one where there's three field trips and then, like, an article that was kind of a field trip, but they didn't actually call it a yeah. field trip. And this was very not that. Well, this was the 1980 Rockhound and Lapidary Handbook. True. Uh, Lapidary 1980. Uh, this article... It's article. Loose, air quoting, article. The, <laughs> this article, it's pretty much a rundown of all the different machines on the market that you so you can go and buy them. Uh, there's not a whole lot to talk about. However... There was one machine mentioned that I'd like to talk about, and that is Semi-Automatic Ideal Cabbing Machine by Moab Industries. It's basically a cabochon duplicator. Uh, we've talked about duplicators all the time in the, on here because they're, I, I like that concept, right? Uh, you have all these people sitting there grinding away cabochons. They're making all these 30 by 40s, these ovals, these circles, these whatever, these basic shapes for jewelry making, and have an automatic duplicator that runs a stone around on a grinding wheel, and it has a duplicate template made out of steel. So a 30 by 40 oval makes a 30 by 40 preform, something like that. Um, so a very lost in time machine. The one that I just mentioned, though, is for sale on eBay right now. Hmm. And do you want to have a guess at what the current um, price is for this device on eBay? And I will say that it is a completely rusty piece of junk. Like, this thing is jacked up, needs a massive amount of work, and is probably missing parts. So it's a lot. It's expensive. I'm throw out throw out a number. What do you think that costs today? What did it cost then? Uh, I don't have a price. Oh, I don't know. Four fifty. Nine hundred and ninety-nine dollars. Oh. Completely, completely insane. Uh, this uh, it's it's just a very cheap-looking design. Things are held like they're repurposing like a drill chuck from like a cord, like a I said a cordless drill, like a corded drill. Mm-hmm. It's very like I was surprised by that. I was, first off, I was surprised that there was one for sale on eBay. I'm surprised they're asking a thousand dollars, and it's an incomplete machine that is fifty percent rust and fifty percent machine. <laughs> You want one though? That's their only option. I think they got a corner on the market. Yeah, I like the idea of. I like the idea of it 
for novelty sake because I really don't I really don't want a pile of cabochons but if I had a milling machine if I had like a Bridgeport knee mill something like that and I could build the flawless templates you can make all kinds of cool stuff you know all kinds of different like templates for it and you could just run that thing into the ground and be like have a mini factory mini factory it would not be quiet enough to run in the living room though oh. <laughs> that's the new bar that that's is. the new bar for all yeah. laughter is it living is it a living room tool uh yeah the lapidary 1980 was an extremely long article. It was interesting first pick. For it seems like they don't, they really don't come. Sometimes they don't come in strong with their first article. They should be putting in a little bit more effort into the. I don't know. Do people not start reading magazines at the front? I mean, it's probably you're like ten pages in to the first, no, five pages into the first article, but. Before starting this podcast, I've never read a magazine yeah. cover to cover. I would just see something that interest, interested me and go straight to it and then flip around. Like, I've never progressively cover to cover read one. I mean, I don't think I've read everything cover to cover, but I've started at the beginning and flipped through. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've yeah. definitely never read this many ads in my life. No. <laughs> Uh, speaking well, of ads yeah. in this first article it was 25 pages long because it was just like a list like a almost it was just like here's the specs for all these machines mm-hmm. it was 25 pages the way the magazine is set up three columns a page so 75 potential columns of article how many columns were actually article versus ad in those out of the 75 max. Are you do you have a number? Yeah. I have no idea. You made me guess the price <laughs> of the cab duplicator. <laughs> more than more than 3. Okay. Price is right rules 1. Can I go with 1? No. <laughs> it was 33 33 article content. What? The 42, 42 ad. More than half. Why would you put that? I guess they want to get those. You pay for your ad to be earlier in the magazine. I mean, we, you know, there is a slight benefit to a long comparative, machine comparative article at that point in time. Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. But. Should it have been the first article? No, it definitely should have been the last. Should it have spanned 25 pages no. when it was only 10? Pages? It sounds like something that they could have done a supplement, like supplement yeah. issue. Like have the have it be like January 1980. You have like a double issue. You do something special and you just put this thing out of all these different like comparative tables for machines. Yeah, you put it in... It, I love looking at manufacturers' websites and being like the specs and weighing all these things out. That would be really hard back then. Yeah, I, I would. I, I would. I see the value in it, but me today, I read it. I'm like, meh. I think it would have been a useful reference. Just it wasn't laid out in a very useful way. Yeah. Would you like to introduce the next article? Oh, I, 
I didn't write down the full title, but the main part was Minerals 1980. Some exceptional mineral specimens were on Earth last year. Well, that's a little misleading because uh, it's more than, <laughs> more than just the past year. Uh, but this was, I thought this was a pretty good article. Uh, it's from Bob Jones. Uh, which he kind of summarized some of the different mineral discoveries in the past couple of years. Many of them were international. Actually, right now, I'm holding up for the viewers at home, which you can't see. I actually have a book from Bob Jones called The Frugal Collector, and this is volume one, but they never made volume two. Oh. Uh, I think I, I had a hard time looking him up, but um, Bob Jones, I don't think he's still with us nowadays, but mm -hmm. uh, I might be wrong. Uh, currently... So uh, the sticker price on this book is $53. I did not pay $53 for this. I actually have yet to read this, but I like the concept of having a book about the types of minerals and stuff that you should collect if you're a cheapskate. And you can actually still buy this today on the Rock and Gem website. Uh, I was trying to troll eBay and A-Books and all of that. And nope, uh, the Frugal Collector is available on the Rock and Gem website. Um, I can't necessarily recommend it, but I did buy it because it seems like a super cool hmm. book concept. But uh, yeah, so uh, Bob Jones, the frugal collector, he is also the writer here um, of, of this article. Uh, he mentioned a, a couple of rather notable mineral discoveries for the time. Uh, he mentioned Bob Jackson's spruce claim up here in Washington in the Cascades. Uh, he did say he did reference the 1978 article, which appeared in the mineralogical record, in which Bob Jackson and his crew describes their finds up there, which it's like top tier museum quality pyrite and quartz crystals. Um, one thing I thought was funny though about this article was the number of mentions of the mineralogical record. Uh -huh. Like, yeah, I, 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 can't, I didn't count, but it's like three or four mentions of the mineralogical record, which you know that's that's fine. Um, but you are writing a rock and gem article, yeah. So, but I'll, it was mostly international mineral discoveries. Where I'm like, cool, like, yeah, okay, it wasn't like, really, you know, but. Uh, Bob Bob Jackson, Bob Jackson, author of uh, the Rockhound's Guide to Washington, uh, Volume One, Two, Three, and Four. So, uh, I think Bob Jones is still alive. Well, there you go. He's he was at the Rice Museum in 2015. I saw that. There's a article from him from 2021 on oh. Rock and Gem, but I don't know if it's something recent but i don't see anything online That's saying good. that he is not alive so i assume he is do you did you have any other thoughts on minerals from 1980 uh they the author meant bob jones the author mentioned he was impressed he saw some new azurite from morocco and he was impressed by the crystals that he saw in the la county museum's case at the pasadena show which the museums should do cases at shows. Yeah. We mean, the only museum we've seen do a case at a show is the Rice Museum at the Portland mm -hmm. Mount Hood Rock. And honestly, it wasn't that good of a case. No. Nobody was writing, mentioning it in a magazine article. It was... So, well, so at the... No, their case was good. It was the, the what, basalt one? The yeah. volcanic? Mm-hmm. 
It was fine, but it wasn't like, oh, I was impressed. Let me write this and remember and write it down. Yeah, they didn't. And also they're like a rock museum, so obviously. But they weren't like a L.A. County museum. You go in L.A. County museum now, are you like, do you still have those Azerite crystals? They're going to be like, what? Uh, our museum locally here in Spokane, they have 70, I think 78 rock and mineral specimens, and they're not displayed. You have to ask, uh, you have to make an appointment with a curator to go look at them. Yeah, that's just, uh, they just don't care. They just don't care. They also didn't have a case at the show. <laughs> they did not. should contact them next year. You know what? I, I, they would. That would actually be kind of interesting. Be like, contact them and be like, do your job. By the way, I have a, I have a beef with our local museum. You've never been there? I've never been there, but I don't like that they have stuff like, it's supposed to be like an art museum slash little natural history and historical stuff and they have like a traveling Pixar exhibit so they're like come come down and see Shrek like no get out of here Shrek's not Pixar whatever same thing same thing yeah I mean they have have traveling exhibits but they don't have very much local stuff I mean it's okay to do traveling exhibits I mean the Shrek thing traveled all over but they're just a little bit lack. In my opinion, they're lacking in local history, and they're not really a local history museum out here. I mean, if, if they're gonna, if you're gonna have like some off-putting to some people traveling exhibits, at least make it something that I want to see because that's the most important. Like, I want you know, give me like a, uh, I want to see like some stuff, uh, chips, uh, the A team, uh, Alf. I want to see. How about that? Why don't we just like break out some old TV show artifacts and parade those things around? Who cares? Just do whatever at the museum. Yeah, they should definitely at least put their rocks and minerals back on display. They took them off the display. They used to be on display. Yeah, there's and they got like rid of no it. local history display except for the two houses you can go into. Yeah. Next. Continuing the 1980s theme, we have Jewelry Makers 1980. The costs go up, but so does the demand. So this kind of starts off a theme that we're going to see for the entire rest of the magazine, which is things are expensive, particularly gold and silver. I... And they weren't wrong. I, yeah, they're, they're, they are correct. I do think it's interesting to look at this with hindsight. Uh, you know, this article uh, starts starts off by talking about the high cost of silver at the time. Now, keep in mind, it is April 1980. We just started to see the silver bull market fall apart. Um, what? Also keep in mind, they're writing this in January. Yes, yeah. So there's the lead time of publication. Yeah. So really... Yeah, we're reading this in 1980 publication being written in January-ish. Um, so we're starting to see the silver bull market fall apart. And, you know, from the actions of the Hunt Brothers in the late 70s, we saw peak silver in 1980 at $139 an ounce. And that- that but was in January. That was in so January. So they were 19. writing this at, and they're like, it's only going to go up. Yeah. Thinking that. Yeah. So that's their perspective. 
So when you adjust that for inflation, it's $516 an ounce in today's money, which that's crazy. Uh, the current silver spot price in June, end of June 23 is around $23 an ounce, but you can buy it for about $28 an ounce because of the premium. I we could do a whole podcast on the Hunt Brothers. The Hunt the story of the Hunt Brothers is completely wild. These guys cornered America's silver market. They did all kinds of like crazy things. The TV show Dallas is based off of their life. Uh, some of the crazy things that they did was uh, one of the brothers went to a Western action shooting event and hired the best gunslingers around to protect silver shipments on airlines as they gathered up all of the silver and pumped the price. Like, that's wild. Can you, I can't even imagine... Can you imagine something like that nowadays? Been like, it just, it's crazy. And now they sell frozen pizzas. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the Hunt Brothers is crazy. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so when they were writing this in January, it was... $35 an ounce, their price, their dollars, 140 our dollars now for inflation. Yeah. And then by April, it had already f- fallen by a lot, $50 adjusted for inflation. So 140 to 50 mm-hmm. So they were like freaking out. And by the time the articles came out, it wasn't even... I mean, it was still expensive. That's still a lot. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, if today we had 38, $38 $48 yeah. silver, people would be going crazy. People would be going completely yeah. nuts, which... So it's understandable that this is the theme that will come continue to come up. The, the next article, Opal Easter Cross, start with a knot hole and work outwards. This was interesting as a project um well it's the same we've seen this person's work before i i don't remember which issue but Mm -hmm. he did the knot hole was it like beach driftwood it was like glue a gem into the knot of mm. driftwood so which is kind of what he did now yeah basic the basics of this project imagine a piece of wood cut out that has the knot in the middle and you have kind of a vague cross shape to that piece of wood and then you glue to that a slightly smaller version that is made out of opal and in that you drill four holes and using wire you make across and it's all glued together it's kind of hard to like visualize i know but um there is a photo of it up on the website currently rockhounding.com uh there'll be a link in the show notes here to this episode over there and you can check it out yourself and you maybe easter is coming for you when you're listening to this and you want to make some opal jewelry it was not like a was it jewelry I thought it was just kind of a display. It was like a pendant. It was you're supposed to wear it. How big was it? I don't know. Seems pretty big. But uh, the, when when I say opal, it was just like more white potch. It wasn't like precious, yeah. like super fancy high end opal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it. Out of all the jewelry, I think you could make make and see somebody wear. I think like 
if you made a stylish cross that was attractive and appropriately sized, I think that would be good jewelry to make and sell. I mean, you don't see people like really wearing a whole lot of like necklaces and pendants like you once did, but you know, um, a cross is one thing, but a piece of wood with <laughs> a piece of rock glued on it with wires glued on to that I, is a little I, different. Yeah, I always get this like uh, summer camp project vibes when you're like glue a thing to a thing. Or it's a little like home and garden television, like glue a thing to a thing and call it done. I don't know. know. Maybe I'm being judgy. Um, Well, do you want to talk more about the pendant? No, but going back a little bit in this, uh, in every issue, they have the show dates. Mm -hmm. They kind of scan through them. And in this show dates, there was two shows that were happening the same dates, and one was in Provo, Utah, and one was listed in Orem, Utah. And I was like, I think those are pretty close together. And I looked them up, and they're like 15 minutes apart. And the clubs were the Timpanagos Gem and Mineral Club, and the other one was put on by the Timpanagos Gem and Mineral Society. And then when I looked at them, they're actually... Both at the like Utah Technical College, but one of them, but they had a different address. It was like twelve hundred West First Street, and the other one was like twelve hundred fifty West First Street. So I was like, is it the same show? Yeah, that's weird. Or is it two different shows? Because they're listed separately. Are they like if we list separately, we'll get more people? Because it's two different. Cl- I mean. Yeah, like I just, I really was there falling out in a division right. of the club, and and they were like, we're having our show at the college, and they're like, well, we're having our show at the college, and we're doing the second weekend of April, we're doing the second weekend, like, I don't like the Spokane Rock Rollers. I'm gonna make my own club, the Rock Rollers of Spokane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not actually doing no. that, but <laughs> but yeah, that yeah, like was it like a falling out and. They didn't, nobody wanted to give up the date and the place, or was it just like a dual show? And I don't know. They're like, this is funny. One's the club and one's the society. Or maybe they got along and it was a joint show. I don't know. Yeah. Seemed very odd. I wish I knew the story. Whoever lived in Salt Lake City era in 1980 and was active in rock clubs and knows the story, send us an email. Yes. Please do that. Moving right along to the next article, Investing in Gemstones. Dave Wilbur claims that diamonds are everybody's best friend. So, Sarah, should you invest in gemstones? Please say no, please say no, please say no. Dave Wilbur, who sells gemstones, says (laughs) you should. And I'm sure he has no motive. Yeah, so the guy is a, a dealer of gems and minerals. So everything he says in this article is 100% biased because he's definitely trying to pump the market. Uh, he's like, those guys did it with silver. Why can't I artificially control the market of gemstones? Yeah, so this guy here, 
Um, well, first off, let me state that investing in gemstones, like any other things, you're you're hedging a bet, right? Like, think of all the people that people that were like Beanie Babies. I want to buy invest in Beanie Babies, Pogs, Pokemon, like all this stuff is. It can go really well. It can also go really, really bad. Generally speaking, okay, um, treating something like an investment as opposed to a hedge is different. Um, Investments pay dividends. Gemstones don't pay dividends. Um, Anyways, so... They mentioned in here that a law was passed that said you could legally invest your pension in gemstones. And I'm assuming that law was... Yeah, I mean, there's like... There's like invested like iras that like hold a lot lot of gold and like there's all kinds of like different like uh financial vehicles nowadays that you can connect to more tangible things like this but i'm like nah all right like we're gonna we're gonna get into this because uh i i call bs on it um but before I tell you exactly why I kind of call BS on this. Um, you can absolutely buy rough, like a rough uh, knobby black opals and cut them and turn profit. You can buy minerals low in bulk, sit on them, hope that maybe you know something, maybe you have some kind of special knowledge about it, like a mine closing material coming off the market in hopes that you can sell it higher later on you can absolutely do that but you should be doing that with money that you would otherwise have no other use for um i see way too many people going in heavy financially into these types of things and they get screwed they get screwed and i'll give you kind of a little bit of an example of that here so, uh, this guy, uh, Dave, they gave an example here in their article of a one carat D color diamond purchased by Dave in 1962 for $1,635. It has a wholesale value today, 1980. So he bought it in 62, 1980, a wholesale value of $43,000. Isn't that really small? One carat? We'll get, we'll, we'll get into that here in a sec. So his $1,600 investment became a $43,000 investment, which, and he said it would retail anywhere from forty-three dollars to $60,000. Assuming a retail value of $45,000, that would represent an average yearly increase in value of 147% over the past 18 years, which that's the equivalent to a compound interest rate of 20.22%. So uh, he's treating it like a high high interest rate, basically. Um, there's a lot of problems here, right? Um, and just so that we can have some perspective as far as what we're talking about, uh, what he's you know, talking about this one carat diamond. So as an example, as an example, one carat diamond, in a princess cut is about a 5.5 millimeter square stone. I can buy 
a one carat decolored princess cut diamond in natural with an SI clarity right now for six to eight thousand dollars. Today's money. I can buy that same stone in a lab, lab grown, flawless, right? Two thousand dollars. So if you were buying an invest expecting to sit on diamonds, like let's say you're gonna be buying He's, what he's doing is he's saying, I bought this diamond for $1,600. And now I could easily sell for $45,000, right? Like it gained a hundred, like basically almost 150% in value. You're like, you know, like a yearly increase of that. Like that's way better than anything else. Come on, you should be buying diamonds too. And had you been holding diamonds when... Some of the big diamond discoveries happened of natural. And that shit that came out onto the market, like, no. Like you'd be you'd be screwed. You'd be screwed. Uh in the Soviet Union at that point in time, there was huge diamond mines like ramping up production. Uh lab grounds started to come out. So I mean, if you had read this advice, purchased diamonds in 1980 at this exorbitant price you lost a ton of money you lost a ton of money it just doesn't make any sense yeah do you think he knew that there was mines ramping up in soviet union i mean obviously he probably didn't know about like i mean other things at at that time lab grown was not really a thing like i think it was lab grown diamonds in theory only like we didn't have the technology at that point in time uh, I would sure. assume that he had to have some insider understanding of the market and mines that were going in and out of production. But yeah, I've seen lab grown, like lab grown versus natural. Like, don't waste your money on natural. Like, what are you doing? Like, lab growns are driving the prices down, you know? And I don't think necessarily diamonds are a good stone to buy in the first place uh they're just very very generic although i, I mean I, ha- I have some diamonds i have five very very tiny 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 on cut natural diamonds they're cool i think on natural diamonds look kind of neat they have a cool structure to them but uh yeah and then the article goes on and gives more examples, but I kind of don't really care at this point. They yeah, said so you like, could eh. get other... Gen- uh, they weren't just saying diamonds, but mostly they... You sh- I mean, diamonds are the gem to buy. Yeah. But the answer is no, you shouldn't invest in gems. No, you definitely, you definitely shouldn't. Uh, crisis in silver. The skyrocketing cost turns you into a nickel smith it's like a silversmith but cheap yep i added that last part uh, <laughs> uh, i mean this article is really just like do you use silver it's really expensive here's what you could do and and this is another bob jones article yeah. and i i like his writing style like he, he did, he's we've came across articles where we're like this is kind of poorly written uh no, Bob Jones. I'm I'm looking forward to reading his book. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, the article is all about the crazy silver prices. We've already kind of talked about that and some of the different things that a silversmith could do 
back in 1980. I guess that's me saying back in 1980, but they weren't saying back in 1980 because it was 1980 to deal with the high prices such as collecting the silver dust from yeah. your bench and like you, you melt it back down. Uh, stop using silver for yeah. jewelry, like the parts of jewelry that you're not going to see, like clasps, bales, that type of stuff where you're like, use something else. And uh, yeah, it was just, that's kind of his advice. He definitely swayed people away from using sterling. Mm-hmm. He's not into... I, I think at that time, a lot of people were trying to pass sterling off as fine 999 silver when it was sterling. So sterling is 0.925 and not 0.999. Oh. So there's other... You're alloying it out, which... I mean, I guess it adds durability, and you can kind of be an unscrupulous person. But it's definitely just telling people rather than doing that, you know. It was interesting. At that point in time, it was also a little self-created problem. People people that were silversmiths were seeing the high prices, and they're like, oh, I'm going to convert that into cash. Now you don't have any silver to make your jewelry out of but you have cash and you're like, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, like you're, you're kind of, kind of screwing yourself a little bit. In that article, he was like, gone are the dates of 10 ounce belt buckles. Seems like a really big belt buckle. Yeah. That's, that's like a rodeo trophy belt. Like, Those days are indeed gone. (laughs) He was right. Accurate. Accurate. Well. Finally, we've got a field trip. Gooding geodes. You can find geodes, agate, and jasper at this Idaho location. Except they're not actually geodes. I just have to say that. Um, So, Thunder eggs doesn't start with a G. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we only get the one field trip in this article, or uh, only one field trip article in this issue, and it's to a location that's just outside of Gooding, Idaho, which that's north of Twin Falls. Twin Falls is in southern Idaho. Uh, the Golden Spike Gem and Mineral Society of Ogden, which it's still a club today, uh, they went out and they went to go look for geodes, agates, and jasper. Um, they are a little confused uh, since they keep calling these rocks that they're finding geodes when they're actually thunder eggs. And yes. uh, they describe, they go on to describe some of the process of how they form. And they kind of like get it mostly right. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I can't really fault them. I wonder at, at that point in time in 1980. Um, there's virtually zero literature on thunder eggs, their formation, uh, lithophysi is what we're actually talking about here. And so, but they did a pretty good job. Um, other, I mean, other than calling them geodes, they said, like most volcanic geodes, those form from the Gooding area started out as a gas bubble 
in a drop or big blob of molten lava. You're like, yeah, okay. Kind of. Kind of. The lumpy round masses, which crack on cooling, was covered with volcanic ash that drifted down or by soil that was likely washed in with water. And as time went on, it was covered by many layers of sand and silt. And then as it lay deep in the ground, silica-bearing waters either came up or went down through the soils and completely filled the hollow interior of some of the geodes with crypto-crystalline quartz. So kind of correct. I mean, you don't really... You, you basically, you need a big, uh, sticky rhyolite flow. And thunder eggs only come out of rhyolite flows. That's the, the thing that separates out a geode and a thunder egg is the volcanic flow that it comes out of. Geodes come out of things like basalt, andesite. Uh, thunder eggs come out of rhyolite. That's the, the line in the sand with that. Mm. So as an example... The Dugway geode beds are not actually geodes because the host material that they are in is rhyolite. So they're thunder eggs, even though they are hollow. You can have hollows in thunder eggs and you can have hollow geodes, but you can't have a thunder egg being a geode. It's just a thunder egg with a hollow. So they got it kind of right, which that's kind of good. That's kind of good that they got it mostly right. Um, but yeah, saying that it's uh, they can form in a big blob of molten lava, I'm like, no, no. You mean like a, you need a you need a flow. You need like a a big flow. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I've never heard of this spot, but I guess it's pretty far away from us. Yeah. It's closer to Utah than Washington or Oregon. Yes. Yeah. Idaho. Idaho's a long one. Yeah. Idaho's a long one. Well, you have a couple of other things that you'd like to talk about. <laughs> well, the very last almost article was where to write for everything which was a list of manufacturers uh, and dealers and their contact information and there's a little paragraph about them but it was pretty long so this was really I'm think I don't know if we should read another rockhound and lapidary handbook because it, it was I mean it was it took up 15 pages and what the other one i said was like 20 page mm-hmm. 15 20 it's like half the magazine yeah half the magazine is just reference and although i i see the the use for it in 1980 at this it's not really interesting to read or talk about so <laughs> i think I, dis- I think we might have I disagree. I disagree. I I think it's kind of interesting to talk about some of the machines. Yes, it is there's a very limited things to say, but it's still kind of neat to see this the see it summarized, see the year. Well, now we've seen it handbook. once, maybe we'll not. I feel like we were like, "Oh, this it's the handbook. We'll pick that one for the that that year, maybe we won't. Maybe we'll re- reconsider." Maybe we will. We've done them before and they didn't have these long reference. This one was kind of long. Maybe it was cuz the beginning of the decade. I don't know. Well, I think that about wraps it up here. Next time, 
On the previously Rock Hounding podcast, we will be reading Rock and Gem magazine from May 1980. Investing in minerals. Use your hobby knowledge to fight inflation. <laughs> Protect your collection. How to's. Rings galore. Tin smithing. And Rock Hound field trips. Sounds like a continuation of this issue, so if you heard this one, make sure to listen to the next one. Next time!